This is Backstory. I'm Peter Onuf. When the first federal Congress established the separation of church and state, the nation wasn't prepared for what happened next. Americans started embracing all kinds of religion. People like the Wilkinsonians, uh, the Osgoodites, the Cochranites. There's a group called the Screaming Children that crisscrosses Ohio. While religious freedom is enshrined in the Constitution, government officials haven't always practiced what they preached. In 1903, a Mormon senator faced four years of congressional hearings before he could be seated. There comes a point in Smoot's testimony where they ask him, do you believe in obeying the law of God or the law of the land? From controversies over courthouse nativity scenes to conscientious objectors in wartime, the complicated history of church and state, today on Backstory. Major funding for Backstory is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory with the American History Guys. Welcome to the show. I'm Brian Ballow, and I'm here with Peter Onuf. Hey there, Brian. And Ed Ayers is with us. Well, hello, gentlemen. Let's begin today with a holiday fable. For decades, if you visited the town of Leesburg, Virginia in December, you would see a nativity scene on the courthouse lawn right downtown. The crash featured life-size statues of the Virgin Mary, baby Jesus, and the three wise men gathered around the manger. It had sat there in front of the courthouse each holiday season for years. Leesburg is a town with a deep sense of history and tradition, and people who have lived here for decades or even generations are accustomed to things being done a certain way, and change is hard. This is Washington Post reporter Caitlin Gibson. We chatted with her a few years back about a controversy that started in 2009. That's when Loudoun County, where Leesburg is the seat, announced that it was ending the holiday display. Many Leesburg residents were outraged. It's been a decades-long tradition of a nativity scene and tree at the courthouse grounds, which fired up the debate over separation of church and state and freedom of speech. Soon, hundreds of county residents began lobbying to keep the crash. Some showed up at county board meetings wearing Santa hats. But the hubbub also drew in area residents who were not as fond of the traditional crash. Because Loudoun is a growing community, there's an increasingly diverse and eclectic group of people with a range of different opinions. And the American atheists in particular, they're very serious about what they're trying to convey. And they don't think there should be a county-sponsored religious display, period. As a compromise, Leesburg decided to issue 10 permits on a first-come, first-served basis to anybody, secular or religious, who wanted a display. And here's where the story takes a turn. The organization American Atheists thought that religious displays had no place on government property. So they tried to get all 10 permits. That way there wouldn't be any display on the courthouse lawn. No crash, no menorah, nothing at all. But they only got seven of the 10, so instead they decided to set up some, well, creative displays. I believe the first displays to cause a bit of a stir was a mannequin Luke Skywalker. The next year, there was a nativity scene in which a flying spaghetti monster hovered over the baby Jesus, and the display read, 
touched by an angel hair. Things really hit a fever pitch in 2011 when a skeleton Santa Claus was mounted on a cross and displayed on the lawn, and that had been intended to convey society's obsession with consumerism, but it really upset passing people on the sidewalk. It actually wasn't the atheists who put up the crucified Santa, but complaints poured in anyway. So Loudoun County decided to ditch the permit system and revert to a county-sponsored nativity scene. But this time, they included some nods to non-Christians, like a menorah, a reindeer, and a healthy, non-crucified Santa. The new display satisfied the traditionalists since it brought back the beloved creche. But as Leesburg becomes bigger and more diverse, there are more and more people in the town who just don't want a county-sponsored display at all. You know, they are members of this community now, and I think that they also feel like they want the courthouse that's at the center of, you know, this historic town to reflect their sense of what's right as well. This year, Kresh, Menorah, and Santa are already ensconced on the Leesburg Courthouse lawn. But Caitlin Gibson says that's probably not a permanent resolution. I am keeping an eye on it. Yes, I definitely am. Leesburg, of course, is just one of many American towns trying to figure out how to navigate the holiday season without endorsing any one religion. And these controversies extend well beyond the annual creche versus menorah debate. In recent years, the Supreme Court has heard several cases dealing with the government's role in religion, from prayer at local government meetings to health care mandates for religiously owned corporations. So today on the show, the long, uneasy history of church and state in America. The First Amendment says that Congress can neither establish a state religion nor prohibit Americans from practicing their own religions. But how have these meanings changed over the centuries, and what counts as a religion? And what happens when your religion prevents you from fighting for your country? Ed, Peter, listening to that piece on Leesburg, one has to wonder, what did the founders have in mind for the relationship between church and state at the very beginning of our nation? And yes, Peter, I am looking at you. Well, Brian, that Leesburg story had a comic dimension. Maybe your feelings were hurt. I don't know. I did not kill Santa Claus. I just want you to know that, Peter. <laughs> If you go back to the early period, there's uh, nothing amusing. It's not just a human interest story in the Washington Post, because we're talking about a long history that 18th century people remember of religious wars in Europe that drenched the earth in blood. And the great hope for the Americans was that they could sustain peace among themselves, and that meant you couldn't favor one church over another, because throughout Western history, that had been the pattern. And the persecution of people on religious grounds was not confined to the old world because it happened right here in America with Quakers being strung up in Congregationalist Massachusetts with Baptists being jailed and abused in Virginia. And so it was clear that the new nation couldn't have an established church. That's what we have in the First Amendment. But what's surprising and interesting to contemplate is that there continued to be state-supported churches in New England— huh. That is, it took until 1833 to disestablish state-sanctioned, tax-supported churches that would be Congregationalist churches in New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. 
But clearly the writing on the wall was that there would be a wall between church and state to maintain the peace. If people can worship uh, without making war against each other, accept each other, tolerate each other, that's what the wall of separation is really about. It's not to keep religion out of public life, but it's to make sure that religion doesn't destroy public life. I'm not really sure how we would evaluate the founder's success on all this, Peter, because the 19th century was pretty filled with religious chaos. Mm -hmm. If you think about the wars against the Mormons, for example, uh, all the way from New York to Utah constantly being harassed, or you think about the huge conflicts between Protestants and Catholics over the schools of the cities of the Northeast. Anywhere Mm -hmm. you looked, it seemed that people were saying, what would religious freedom mean in this country? Does it mean we can create new religions? Does it mean that we can sustain generations-old belief in a new context? I don't know, Brian. It strikes me that the 19th century didn't hand the 20th century a very clear set of marching orders. No, you never do, Ed. But <laughs> Sorry about that. In many ways, it just gets more complicated. In the 20th century, you get the rise of people who are either not religious or who are atheists. And this is played out in the Scopes Monkey Trial, a battle over teaching evolution in the schools of Tennessee. And this is broached in all kinds of public issues after World War II, so that by the time you get to the 1960s, the Supreme Court weighs in, in a case called Engel v. Vitale, 1962, they argue prayer in the school is not allowed. And I don't think the court is meaning to say people shouldn't be religious. They're simply saying that there is a new set of interests that, in many ways, I think America has not seen before. The interest of those who have no religion or who are atheists. And when they operate in a public space, they too need to be protected. And I might add, this is a Supreme Court that's quite interested in protecting all kinds of rights for individuals. Mm -hmm. I think what's happening, Brian, is that rights have become sacred. Yes. That's what we're trying to worship. It's a little harder than the conventional forms of worship, and, and conventional religious people might find it deeply unsatisfactory. Peter, that's so well put, because if you think about it, you might say that religiosity was all pervasive. Mm-hmm. back in your period, and you might say that it's actually the sense that we all come with a bundle of rights that need to be protected by the state that is all pervasive by the 1960s and 1970s. Earlier, we heard from Washington Post reporter Caitlin Gibson. Peter, you were just talking about why the separation of church and state was built right into the Bill of Rights, but I think that's pretty surprising given how religious a lot of Americans were. Yeah, well, Brian, uh, yes and no, you're right and wrong. They might have been God-fearing, but they also looked to less celestial sources for inspiration. 
Well, of course you would go to someone who could look at your tea leaves and discern the future. There's nothing wrong with that. This is Adam Jordner, a historian at Auburn University. Jordner says with no official national church, early Americans took full advantage of their newfound religious freedom. And we're not just talking about building a Baptist church or Jewish synagogue. There's a boom in publications about books of magic. There's a boom in publications about interpreting your dreams. Uh, one guy went undercover to what he called the witches of New York, which was all the fortune tellers in New York. And he figured there were 1,600 people weekly who went to these, uh, what he called two and sixpenny witches. He was very thorough and he, he marks down all the different practices and people are divining by tea and they're divining by palmistry and they're divining the future by the moles on your face. Uh, and this is something people want. This is kind of a do-it-yourself um, way of getting around uh, your life. You don't need to go to a minister necessarily to get advice. You can also go to a fortune teller. And if you were lucky, you might have paid a visit to the country's most famous fortune teller, Moll Pitcher. She lives in Lynn, Massachusetts, uh, and she really did live on a house high up on a hill with mm. two giant whale bones that formed wow. her gate. The idea was that uh, if she had these giant whale bones in front of her house, then anyone who wants their fortune t told could just ask, well, where, where might I find the giant whale bones? And then they don't have to admit <laughs> in public that they're going to a fortune teller. Right. Um, but uh, she was apparently consulted by uh, average folks, by average uh, sailors, uh, and also by uh, a lot of influential people in Massachusetts. One story was that uh, when she predicted a boat was going to go down, every single sailor left the ship. Someone even suggested that President James Madison would have had better luck predicting British naval movements if he had consulted Mall Pitcher. <laughs> well, did he? <laughs> no, Brian, he didn't. Madison and the other founders wouldn't have been caught dead talking to a fortune teller. If you're relying on magic and you're mm -hmm. relying on fortune telling, then yep. you're not relying on your own industry. You're not relying on providence, uh, this idea mm. of you know God's will as expressed through history. And you're also, if you're listening to Mall Pitcher and you abandon this venture, well, you're not being a very good capitalist either. A lot of capitalist fortunes get wrecked because if everyone left a whaling ship because she said it was going to go down, well, how, how could you plan for the future? So this is not the freedom of religion that uh, the founding fathers had in mind. This was not acceptable. This was dangerous. That suggests, too, uh, Adam, that religion is supposed to do something for the state if, if it's one of the uh, uh, conventional religious faiths. Yeah, the idea is that um, if we believe in religion, it's supposed to take us down the moral path. It's supposed to educate us. It's supposed to edify us and make us good. Uh, if you're going to go to a religion, it has to be a rational religion. There can't be any hint of the supernatural in it. If, if there were miracles, they had to have ended long ago uh, because modern miracles, they assumed were false. And mm, if you believed right. in a modern miracle, you were being deliberately misled by someone who was out to get your money and to get your freedom. Uh, so there, there's a case in, uh, in 1810 where uh, New York, one of these New York ministers goes and he buys a, a magic charm that was for sale and he opens it up and he finds it's just a bunch of Latin words, a gobbledygook. And he says, uh -huh. this is uh, dangerous because people might buy this thinking it will protect them. And he writes that government ought to stop such fatal practices whereby the lives of many are put in jeopardy. 
and he says he has to deliver those who are entrusted to my care from the shameful yoke of superstition. And this idea that if you go to a fortune teller or a diviner, you're not putting your trust in your reason. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's dangerous to the Republic. So uh, it seems strange that you'd waste the power of the state on going after fortune tellers. But it did happen. There were laws against fortune telling and Many of the states, Adam? Yeah, there's laws in New Hampshire, New York, Massachusetts, uh, Maryland, uh, you know, usually classifying fortune telling with things like um, prostitution, uh, vagrancy, and uh, they're not prosecuted very often. There's a case in New Hampshire, there's a case in Ohio, but they are on the books in a lot of these states. So, Adam, you've described a certain wariness and even illegality to practicing the occult to fortune telling and so forth, but it's not rigorously enforced uh, because there's no real clear and apparent threat from Mall Pitcher or other fortune tellers. Uh, how does it become different when you're talking about groups who share beliefs and who practice them in some conspicuous way? Yeah, and the connection with fortune telling is that fortune telling is classed as superstition and not religion. And when mm -hmm. groups get classed as superstition and not religion, then then they get persecuted. And, you know, taking people's belief and saying, this is not protected by uh, the First Amendment. This is not protected by law because it's not really religion. Uh, Shakers right. get classified as superstition and not religion, and they're persecuted. And Native American prophets get classified as superstition, not religion, and they get persecuted. And Mormons get classified as superstitious and not religious, and they get persecuted. And then there is a, a whole host of other religions um, that are successfully uh, prosecuted for these things, and they don't survive. And those people like the Wilkinsonians, uh, the Osgoodites, the Cochranites. There's a group called the Screaming Children that crisscrosses Ohio. Uh, <laughs> so there's a fair number of these religions that, that don't make it, uh, in part because the state goes after them, and, and sometimes it throws their leaders in jail. Uh, and so those, those are religions that are cropping up and getting shut down in the early republic. Well, Adam, that, that's an interesting history that most of us didn't know much about. But, uh, of course, we're past all that now. Uh, religion is no longer controversial. Is it or is it? Well, I don't, I don't think so, Peter. And I think there's very much a 21st century version of this, which is if you want to prosecute a modern religion, you define it as something other than religion. Uh, and I think uh, there is a parallel between what happened in the early Republic to groups like Native American prophets and, and Mormons is, is happening now with American Muslims. And there's an mm. effort to uh, define Islam not as a religion, but as a kind of political philosophy and some sort of grand threat to the state. And once you accept that, then there isn't any need to respect it as a religion. Religious mm. rights can sort of go out the window. Adam Jordner is a historian at Auburn University and author of Blood from the Sky, Miracles and Politics in the Early American Republic. There's a clause in the Constitution that most American politicians know well. It's the one that states, no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. 
We're going to turn now to a story that puts the religious test clause, well, to the test. It begins with the arrival of newly elected Republican Senator Reed Smoot in Washington, D.C., February 1903. The 41-year-old businessman from Utah was eager to begin his term, but Smoot's path to public service was anything but smooth. Petitions and letters of protest poured into the Senate, demanding that Smoot be removed from office. Whether or not Reed Smoot would remain Senator Reed Smoot was debated in a series of hearings over the next four years. They would be like the Watergate hearings Mm -hmm. in our day or the Iran-Contra hearings. So a lot of press coverage. A lot of press coverage. The sense that a lot was at stake. This is historian Kathleen Flake. To the protesters, there was a lot at stake because Smoot was Mormon. By this time, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the federal government had clashed for more than six decades, and Mormonism loomed large in the fears of Protestant America. Some saw the Mormons' control of Utah as theocratic, but even those worries were eclipsed by what was seen as the Mormons' most egregious offense. People were concerned that Mormonism as a revelatory system was lawless. The evidence provided for that was people's willingness to practice polygamy. Even though the Church of Latter-day Saints had officially given up the practice of plural marriage in 1890, in part to pave the way for Utah statehood, non-Mormons weren't buying it. Which brings us to the outrage over Senator-elect Smoot. Now, he was nothing like the stereotype of the bearded Mormon patriarch that filled the pages of popular culture. He was a clean-cut guy, and he only had one wife. But he still wasn't your average Mormon. He was one of the 12 apostles at the top of the church hierarchy. And they are the cadre from which the president of the Mormon church is chosen. So he was on track to become the leader of the Mormon church. So the, the argument that was made in favor of these hearings before the Senate uh, Committee on Privileges and Elections was that he was a member of the leadership of a law-breaking institution, so how could he sit in the National Lawmaking Congress? The Senate committee sought to answer a bigger question. To whom would Smoot be loyal, to the nation or to his church president? The Senate hearings began in 1904, a year after Smoot's arrival in Washington. There comes a point in Smoot's testimony where they ask him, do you believe in obeying the law of God or the law of the land? And it's that frankly asked. To our modern sensibilities, this seems wrong. Remember that clause in the Constitution that says no religious test is required to hold public office? There is a moment where they are asking Smoot about his religious conscience. And one of the senators says, are we able to ask that question? That's a religious question. We're not supposed to ask those kinds of questions. And another senator answered, well, for us, what is religious is for them political, so it's okay for us to ask it. It's difficult to imagine that committee, each of them in their own way, being a pillar of their churches, would ever have allowed that question to be asked of themselves. In fact, they could not imagine that they could do anything religiously that would conflict 
with their nation's values or political interests. Because they lived in a Christian nation. And they lived in a Protestant nation. In other words, the separation of church and state went only so far in the early 20th century. It was widely assumed that the state was Christian. And for many people, Mormons weren't. And so this was a common thread in in the nation's experience with Mormonism. They were trying to sort out what was religious citizenship for the purposes of the First Amendment. Right. Are the Mormons protectable? Can they claim that kind of protection? But Flake says the Senate committee wanted to address more than just Smoot's spiritual conflict of interest. They had a more pressing question for the gentleman from Utah. Were the Latter-day Saints still practicing polygamy, even though 15 years earlier they had promised that they would not? To answer this, the Senate subpoenaed LDS President Joseph F. Smith, nephew of Mormonism's founder, along with seven of the church's 12 apostles. And the problem the president has is that it is being practiced. (laughs) Since this was against federal law, the Mormon patriarchs had to answer carefully. But it was difficult for the Senate to prove anything, especially when LDS leaders gave evasive answers. To up the ante, the committee brought in outside witnesses, including a detective who made it his mission to find and expose illicit Mormon marriages. At a certain point in that testimony, Smoot leans across the table and grabs him by his suit and calls him a liar. And Smoot is a very mild man. So this was at this, least up till that point. Until that point, but um, this this was a very trying moment for the Latter Day Saints as well as very aggravating to the nation. This was a make-or-break moment for the Mormons. Many of the church's most vocal critics, mostly Protestant ministers and social reformers, saw the hearings as a chance to stamp out what they called the Mormon problem. By proving that Mormons were unwilling or unable to reject polygamy, they hoped to bring Smoot down and the church's political power with him. So it sounds like, really, it was Mormonism that was on trial at these hearings, not not Senator Smoot himself. And I don't merely infer that this was a trial of the Mormon church. The chairman of the Senate committee said that it was a trial of the Mormon church and Mm -hmm. that, that Reed Smoot was the opportunity to put these leaders of the Mormon church under oath and demand of them to know whether they were still practicing polygamy. The hearing became a referendum on that issue. These hearings continued on and off for the next three years. When they were all over in 1907, the Senate committee recommended that Smoot not keep his seat. The deciding vote then went to the full Senate, and they ruled in Smoot's favor. So how, after years of bitterness and conflicting testimony, did Smoot pull this off? Well, a few things were in play here. First, the Mormons publicly fired two polygamous apostles and promised they'd start cracking down on plural marriage. And Smoot had been a senator for four years. His colleagues liked him. But perhaps most important of all, he had a key ally, President Teddy Roosevelt. Roosevelt wanted to win over Western voters, and he wanted Republican senators like Smoot to represent them. Once the president was convinced the Latter-day Saints would abandon polygamy, he marshaled his forces in the Senate to vote in favor of the Mormon senator. 
And in the process, the nation is able to define what is permissibly religious that is not Protestant. Kathleen, when you step back and look at the long history of the Church of the Latter-day Saints in the United States, are these hearings a turning point for the acceptance of Mormons in America? These hearings are a huge turning point. They had been throughout the 19th century identified as licentious because of their plural marriages, and they'd been viewed as un-American because of their theocratic revelatory organization. When the Mormon Church stops polygamy, and they have in the senator a man who personifies the Victorian morality of the day, and he himself is such an upright, boring, middle-class guy, (laughs) right? He sells it. Yes, definitely. And what happens, we all know, in the course of the 20th century, they become representatives of the exact reverse— hyper-patriotic, hyper-capitalist, and hyper... And prudish. Prudish, and also representative of that kind of 1950s Ozzie and Harriet marriage, (laughs) right? So they do this 180-degree turn in the 20th century. Today, most Americans aren't bothered by the seven senators who are members of the LDS Church. And Mitt Romney, a prominent Mormon, captured the Republican nomination for president in 2012. Kathleen Flake says that change in attitude can be traced back to the Smoot hearings and the 30 years he served in the Senate. By the time he leaves, he has achieved for Mormons what they want the most, which is the nation forgets about them. And so the Mormons, too, are able to assimilate their past in a much more harmonious relationship with the nation. Kathleen Flake is a historian at the University of Virginia. She's the author of The Politics of Religious Identity, The Seating of Senator Reed Smoot, Mormon Apostle. In the late 19th century, one place that separation of church and state definitely did not apply was in United States Indian policy. The Bureau of Indian Affairs wanted Indians to assimilate into white American culture, and they figured the best way to do that was to spread Protestant Christianity. But to make Indians into good Protestants, the BIA had to stamp out indigenous spiritual practices. One of these was dancing. And in the early 1920s, the Commissioner of Indian Affairs, Charles Burke, decided to crack down. He sent a letter to the superintendents of all Indian reservations, asking them to stop, quote, so-called religious ceremonies involving dancing. I regard such restriction as applicable to any dance which involves acts of self-torture, immoral relations between the sexes, the reckless giving away of property, the use of injurious drugs or intoxicants, in fact, any disorderly or plainly excessive The Bureau soon ran into resistance, especially from the southwestern Pueblo tribes. I asked Yale Divinity School historian Tisa Wenger to walk me through the Pueblo reaction to the dancing ban 
Native people were very upset, and they said, this is not accurate. This is not what our dances do. Our dances are good for our people. Our dances are kind of celebration of our traditions. We are continuing the ways of our forefathers. And so for that reason, it became important for them to find a way to defend them against these attacks that were not only coming from the government agents, um, there was a whole barrage of negative publicity all across, you know, this was debated in newspapers and national news magazines. And they had also become kind of a favorite cause of some of the cultural anthropologists and cultural modernist artists and writers of the period. There was an well, artist you know, colony. If, you, if you've won over the cultural anthropologists, you've, you know, you've got it made, right? <laughs> right, Perhaps exactly. one of the most powerful interest groups in America, the cultural anthropologists. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but they certainly had some influence. And um, as an increasing amount of influence in this period in the 1920s. And they're the ones who initially said, look, this is a real religious freedom issue. And they wrote articles in Survey Magazine. Now, was it their religion? Is this the first time that they played the religion card? Um, Native Americans across the more generally had for a very long time been playing the religion card, as you put it, and been saying um, these um, bans on our dances are a violation of religious freedom. Um, the Pueblo Indians are a little bit different case because they had been colonized by Spain and become Catholic. And as a kind of accommodation with the Franciscan missionaries, it worked for them to say Catholicism is our religion and these traditions are our customs. But now under this sort of new regime (laughs) and new U.S. policies, that no longer worked. And because of the framework of the U.S. Constitution and the First Amendment, now framing them as religion and making this religious freedom argument becomes very important and very effective. But did they make their claims, and now I'm talking about the Pueblos and their uh, supporters, did they make their claims in constitutional terms? Did they speak in that language? Yeah. So this was, I'm going to read an example of the language that they used. Um, This was a letter that was written by the All Pueblo Council on April 9th. 1923. One way of worshiping our God is by dancing and singing, praying and fasting. You know better than we do that the Constitution of these United States gives the right and liberty to all people to worship according to the dictates of their own conscience. And then they refer, you know, again to the First Amendment, saying that this circular um, is illegitimate and should not be enforced and that they are going to continue their dances and they're not going to obey this directive. So what happens? Who wins? Um, <laughs> yes. The, it, this worked for the Pueblo Indians at the time. Um, essentially, it became such a huge um, public relations nightmare for the government partly because of these cultural modernist allies who had the the contacts and the media relations savvy to put out this cry um, nationwide, the government is suppressing Indians' religious freedom. And then they publicized the statements from the Pueblo Indians, you know, criticizing the government for violating its own constitutional principles Mm -hmm. of religious freedom. Um, The government backed down. I mean, Commissioner Burke said... 
you know, we really can't enforce this in the pueblos, and the agents on those reservations backed down because it had become such a public relations issue. Is that the end of the story? That is not the end of the story. The government officials were accusing the the Pueblo Indians of violating the separation of church and state in their structures of their tribal governments um, because tribal governments were run by leaders who were known by the term cacique. They were kind of behind-the-scenes leaders and were also the leaders of the ceremonial life. And so that was attacked by government officials and assimilationists as a theocratic system. And it's ironic, isn't it? Because as we were talking about at the beginning, the Bureau of Indian Affairs is working closely with Christian missionaries. So that can appear as a violation of separation of church and state on the part of the U.S. government. At the same time, these government agents are saying to the Pueblo tribes, you all need to modernize your systems and implement separation of church and state and end your theocratic tribal governments. So is it fair to say that by introducing uh, the constitutional defense of religion, uh, the Pueblos inadvertently undermined some of the traditional ways in which religion and governance had been blurred in in their way of life? Yes, that's right. But I don't quite like the way that you said that. Good. Because, then you say, say it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> because it assumes that there are separate spheres of religion and yes. government. And I think that way of separating out our world is so deeply ingrained in our culture that it's hard to conceive of different ways of. But I think, you know, a better way to say that might be that modern distinctions between religion and and government are forced on them. That conversation with Tisa Wenger was recorded in 2013. She's a historian at Yale Divinity School and the author of We Have a Religion, the 1920s Pueblo Indian Dance Controversy and American Religious Freedom. During the First World War, that wall of separation collapsed as religious pacifists were forced to put country before God and serve in the military. Thousands of young men, most of whom were religious pacifists, refused to fight during World War I. Some 500 were thrown in prison. Among them were four Hutterite men from South Dakota. From the very beginning, they had a sense that they could become martyrs, they could be killed for their faith. This is Dwayne Stoltzfus, a professor at Goshen College who's written about the experience of the Hutterites during the First World War. The Hutterites were a group of Anabaptists who believed in communal ownership of property and in nonviolence. They also believe in the strict separation of church and state. They'd been living in Russia, but fled because of military conscription. In the 1870s, President Ulysses Grant invited several hundred Hutterites to the United States, and assured them that they would not have to serve in the U.S. military. They settled in South Dakota and transformed the prairie into productive farmland. But 40 years later, as the United States prepared to enter the First World War, the Hutterites suddenly found themselves in conflict with the federal government. 
So in spring of 1917, the three Hofer brothers, Joseph, Michael, and David, and a brother-in-law, Jacob Whipp, are called before the draft board in South Dakota. It was as though they had crossed the border into a foreign country. Stolzfus says that these men had never had to explain their religious beliefs to outsiders. Their book learning was limited, especially outside of the Bible. One imagines they struggled for words as they responded to questions about who they were and what they believed and what kind of service they were prepared to do. Then at one point, there's this crucial exchange when the question was put to them whether they were needed at home, whether their wives and children needed them there to take care of them. The men answered, honestly, no, they weren't needed at home. The community would surely make sure that everyone was well cared for, as the community always had. And with that, the four men saw slip away an opportunity to avoid military service. The Hofer brothers and Jacob Wiff were then ordered to report to Camp Lewis in Washington state. And on the day that they left, it's like the whole town gathered at the train station. There was a big celebration, grand speeches, a band playing patriotic songs. And these four men dressed in black boarded a train. Everyone else seemed to be excited. But these four, it's clear from their letters, were terrified. The four Hutterites were put into a separate compartment on the train. They barricaded the door, fearful that they'd be attacked. And sure enough, there was a knock at the door, and the Hutterites answered, and they recognized the voice of someone from their hometown. And the young man, William Danforth, at the door knocked and said, we just want to come in and talk to you. And the Hutterites at first refused, and Danforth persisted. They opened the door, and at that point, a group of other young men stormed into the room and dragged the Hutterites out, one at a time, hauled them off, shaved their beards, Mm. gave them haircuts. And for them, it was yet another sign that, that they were entering into a world in which their lives might be at risk. What's interesting is that Danforth also wrote home to describe the same incident. And as he tells his parents about this, he jokes about what he called a a free barbering that he and his fellow soldiers gave these Hutterite young men. And the Hutterites now, he said, were truly a part of the U.S. Army. Wow. So what happens when they get to camp? Do they express their pacifism to the commanding officers? They're given a an enlistment and recruitment form in which they're asked to put down their names, where they're from, how old they are. But at the top of the form is, is a, a phrase, statement of soldier. And the Hofer brothers and Jacob Whipp saw this form and said, we can't sign it. And the officer said, you need to sign it. If you're going to be given blankets, if you're going to be given clothing and a place to sleep, you have to sign this. And they refused. They said, we can't. We're not soldiers. You can see the officers being reasonable but frustrated. And they continue to ask them, please, you have to do this. Otherwise, we're going to have to lock you up. And after uh, some hours pass, it's determined that 
we have two groups of people who were talking across kingdom walls, if you will, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. And the communication is just not getting better with time. If anything, it got worse. The Hutterites were taunted for their German ethnicity and for their refusal to follow military orders. In the eyes of the military and in the hyper-patriotic climate sweeping across the country, pacifism was tantamount to treason. The four men were court-martialed after they refused to sign the soldier's statement or to put on a uniform. They were asked if their religion allowed fighting of any kind, and they responded no. And they were asked if a man was attacking or assaulting your sister or your grandmother or mother, would you fight? And when that hypothetical question was was put to Jacob Whipf, he was clear in saying, no, I would not kill him. He said, we can't kill. That is strictly against our religion. We cannot kill anyone, including our worst enemies. So what happened to them? The Hutterites are sentenced to 20 years of hard labor at Alcatraz. Wow. And the image... It's staggering that here are these four young men who would never lift a hand to hurt anyone. And they were kept in chains and kept under watch until they arrived at Alcatraz. So at Alcatraz, you know, as much as they didn't fit in the U.S. military, I can't imagine that they fit into a prison population. What were their lives like there? At Alcatraz, they were immediately taken down into the dungeon or the basement known as the hole. They spoke about sleeping on the cold cement ground. They had a chance to put on uniforms, but they chose not to. So they slept as best they could on the wet floor with their uniforms beside them, folded neatly. So how long did they endure that? They were there for for several months, and during the time that they were in the hole, they underwent different kinds of of abuse. There were times when they were uh, struck. One of the Hutterites described receiving lashes for his unwillingness to serve in the army, and they were sometimes chained through what's known as high cuffing, where chains were wrapped around their their hands, and then they were pulled up high so that their their toes could barely touch the ground and soon became excruciating. On November 11, 1918, World War I ended, but the Hutterites were not released from prison. Instead, military officials transferred the four men, still in chains, to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Almost as soon as they arrived, though, it's clear that that two of the brothers, Joseph and Michael, are not doing well. They quickly go downhill and both die. There's this really powerful account, though, of family members coming from South Dakota, making the trip down, wanting to be able to see the man, knowing that uh, they are, are not doing well. And Joseph's wife, Maria, arrives in time to be able to see Joseph. Sees him that first night, leaves, comes back the next morning. And when she comes back the next morning, once again she has to see him. And they at first refuse to allow her in. And she she persists. She needs to see her husband. When they allow her in, she approaches and sees that uh, that he has died, that he is in 
a casket and she lifts up the lid and sees that her husband, who for all these many months refused to put on a uniform, is lying there now in his coffin, fully dressed as a U.S. soldier. To the Hutterites, Joseph and Michael Hofer were martyrs. In the eyes of the U.S. government, however, they did not die for their religious beliefs. They died of pneumonia. Dwayne Stoltzfus says that the persecution of the Hofer brothers and other religious pacifists did not go unnoticed in the halls of government. In the wars that followed, the U.S. military changed its policy toward conscientious objectors. Suddenly, there was a choice. You could serve in the military or you could serve under civilian leadership. And so during World War II, we see conscientious objectors who are smoke jumpers and serving in mental hospitals, helping to bring about reforms later on. What does the story tell us about the larger questions about the separation between church and state, do you think? As I read it, the story makes clear that we have to allow for groups like the Hutterites and Mennonites and and Amish to, to remain true to their religious convictions, especially when those convictions cause no injury or damage to anyone else. And in doing so, we end up with a country that is, in the end, stronger for allowing that kind of uh, diversity of convictions to flourish. Dwayne Stoltzfus is a professor of communications at Goshen College and author of Pacifists in Chains, The Persecution of Hutterites During the Great War. A brief postscript. Most of the Hutterites, including the families of the Hofer brothers, moved to Canada after World War I. Peter and Ed, here we are at the end of the show, and in many ways we're back to where we started, talking about the separation of church and state. How do you think it worked out, and how do you think the founders would have thought it worked out? Well, Brian, it's been a work in progress, and I think that work will be ongoing because this is a deep tension in American life. Americans are, among all the Western nations, perhaps the most religious today, And that piety has been sustained by conflicts, well, over church and state. So the founders, I think, would have been very satisfied with the most important thing, and that is this has not been historically a major line of division that will get us to fight wars against each other. It's a tension instead, and even conflicts of religion have helped sustain religiosity. Yeah, Peter, I, I think what really underscores your point and proves you right in many ways is that the kind of religious wars that have been fought in the United States, for the most part, have been political wars. Mm-hmm. And the very fact that we fight over Senator Smoot's religion, or we talk about the difficulty of John F. Kennedy as a Catholic right, being right. elected president in the United States, really proves your point. I think the founders would be really pleased to see that, for the most part, these so-called wars have been fought in the political parties and in the voting booth rather than quite literally in the trenches of warfare. 
Well, I think that's true in a broad way, Brian, but it's not that these tensions haven't sometimes spilled over into violent No, you're right about that, Peter. But I think the very violence, those moments in which we have martyrs, uh, I think we've looked back on those moments of intolerance, of conflicts over religion, and said, you know, we have learned to respect the people of faith who disagree with us. Uh, That's not an easy solution, and there's going to be challenges to that broad consensus and that broad toleration and respect that we like to think characterizes American history. But it's one of the great things that I think we can call on as a tradition. You know, that's an uncharacteristically optimistic interpretation, Peter. So I think I want to let some clouds kind of come over this parade. In the 19th century, we see one wave after another of challenge to this idea of the separation of church and state. Americans are thrown off balance when enormous numbers of Catholics arrive across the 19th century. And then they're thrown off balance again with the arrival of Jewish immigrants in the late 19th and early 20th century. In our own time, the arrival of relatively small numbers of people of Islamic faith seems to have thrown the nation off balance once again. And as we saw in earlier years, people are trying to figure out where do we draw the line between religious faith and political belief? That has been the persistent concern of people that somehow people's larger loyalties to the ultimate truths of religion will somehow seep into their political actions and beliefs. So I guess you could say that America has shown its capacity to deal with this in the long run, but in the short run, it certainly does seem to lead to a lot of turmoil for a lot of people. That's right, Ed. That's going to do it for us today, but don't put up a wall to separate us from your thoughts on today's episode. Keep the conversation going online by heading to BackstoryRadio.org or send email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by Andrew Parsons, Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, Ramona Martinez, and Andy Cubis. Jamal Milder is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Melissa Gismondi is our researcher. We have help from Sequoia Carrillo, Emma Gregg, Aidan Lee, Liz McCauley, and Peyton Wall. Special thanks to J.P. Dukes and Jess Ingebretson. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Major support is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional funding is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. And by History Channel, history made every day. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton Professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Peter Onuf is Professor of History Emeritus at UVA and Senior Research Fellow at Monticello. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Backstory is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange.